0: to walk in the ways that, that you have established for us. Father, we pray this morning as we open up your word that you will indeed bless us. The Holy Spirit would be our teacher. You would enlighten and challenge us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're at Revelation chapter 19. And verse 11. Revelation nineteen eleven. I think you have a lot of verses on the handout. I'm not sure if we'll get that far today or not. But <clears throat> we've spent a lot of time looking at what is leading up to this event we know as the second advent. And here is one of the, the major passages found in Scripture. You would expect to find this in the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is a summary of unfulfilled prophecies. And the second advent... This pulls all of it together. There are prophecies that will be fulfilled throughout the tribulational period. But how many prophecies in Scripture are there that revolve around the second advent? I don't have a number. but I know that there's a lot of them out there. And so here is this summary about when the Lord comes back, whenever He returns, and how glorious it indeed is going to be. We find that the return of the king. Here, there's no better way, I think, to title this just saying simply the return of the king I do have a voice in there somewhere (coughs) (coughs) so here we go here is verse 11 John speaking and I saw now you might remember in the last verse what John had just done he'd made a mistake he got caught up in, in the Uh, excitement of the moment. And it says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, an angel. John knew better than that. In a sense, he inadvertently tested the spirits because the angel said to me, Stop looking. In other words, you're in the middle of a vision. You're not going to see any more of this. He says, I am a fellow bondservant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship the God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here is John. and gets caught up in the moment. He falls at his feet to worship this angel. In a sense, testing the spirit. And the angel said, stop it. Stand back up. I'm no I'm no different than you. I'm a fellow bondservant. I'm a bondservant of the God just like you. You're going to worship. You're going to worship him, not me. Now that's the way people should habit. That's the way they should be addressed. We were in uh, India one time, actually the very first trip I took to India, and we were out in the middle of literally nowhere, except the people that were there were somewhere, and they knew where they were, but we had no clue where we were. As they just, we drove, and then we passed two rocks that said tribal area, and then we kept driving. And Anyway, we ended up out there, and we're walking to do a baptism down at the creek, and this guy runs up and falls down on his face like that and say, you are our gods. And I dropped to my knees right then, grabbed hold of him and stood him up and said, no, we're not. You don't even want that one to go any farther than that. But that's the way a lot of people thought. You are our god." No, 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 no. no time out. This, this won't work and it won't work at all. And that's what the angel did to John when he fell at his feet. And then John says, and I saw. So what you just... This little word right here, this heirs tense of arao, he means he took a good look at something. The vision started again because the vision got shut off in the last verse. Whenever John dropped to worship the angel, it got shut off. And then he says, and I saw, so it's saying the vision has, has resumed. And I saw heaven opened. This is a perfect tense. I, I love perfect passive participles because they say something has been done in the past and it's completed. Now this is all a prophetic framework and so when it uses a perfect and a prophetic framework it's telling us the future events just as certain as if it already happened. I mean that's, that's pretty neat, isn't it? That something God has said about the future is just as certain as if it was already history. Okay, and he says, and I, and I saw heaven open. This is in the vision. Open is anoyga, means to open up, to use twenty, seventy-seven times in the New Testament, twenty-seven times in the book of Revelation. This is the twenty-sixth usage of this word. And we're going to track it whenever we see the last one because it's really cool about heaven opened up and and different things open up and the tabernacle open. And I mean, when anytime this word pops in there, it's got something really neat to tell us. Now <clears throat> it's saying I saw heaven open. It's got a permanent ramification for heaven being opened up for this event. And behold If you're falling asleep, pay attention. When you see the word behold in there, that's what it's saying. And behold, a white horse. Now you might remember a white horse back in chapter 6, verse 2. The opening of the first seal. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first one, came out riding on a white horse. But the problem is, it's the wrong time. For that horseman to be riding. Some people try to equate that horseman. In Revelation 6. With the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19. Because they're both on a white horse. And they're not. Contexts are totally different. And so here here it is. A a white horse. This one is different. Because the Lord's on it. That white horse starts on earth. This white horse starts in heaven. they are different starting points. Different timings. And that's what tells us. It is the wrong time. This is a, another uh, in indication of a pre-trib rapture, by the way, because uh, the the one in chapter 6 actually began on earth. This one begins in heaven. So it says the rapture has already happened. What do we see in verses 7 to 10? The bride has made herself ready, right? So it's time to come back. It's time the he's been taken to the father's house. The ceremony is there. He is now going to conquer his enemies and provide the best habitation that could ever be provided for the bride. And it says, And he who sat upon it. Now see, the last uh, last guy on the white horse, he was anything but this. <laughs> the guy who sits on this is called faithful. Pistos is the word used here. It means that That the rider of this horse is loyal to the plan of God. He is loyal to what has been said. He's called faithful and true. Alathenos, Meaning that he's true in every regard. He's genuine. He's real. The one seated on this horse is faithful. He's going to keep his word. And he is true. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. Sounds like Jesus, didn't he? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And in righteousness, dikaiosune. Now this word righteousness means, righteous means a straight line. So it means that there are standards that set and establish a straight line. And that we are to walk upon that straight line of those standards. And so he does. In his humanity, when he came to earth, Jesus did not deviate from that righteous path at all. Otherwise, he'd have been unrighteous and disqualified to pay for our sins on the cross. So the one that's seated on this horse is what? He's faithful. He's going to keep his word. Whatever he has said, he is going to do it. He is truthful. So his his word is indeed truth. He is righteous, so he's not going to deviate from righteousness whenever he returns. And in righteousness, he judges. These are present tenses of crino and palameo, which means to wage war. Crino means to judge. So what he's saying here in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Present tense is saying that at this future point in history when heaven is open that it is the time has come in the prophetic framework. When the heaven is open, the prophetic framework is proceeding on with the events that it is supposed supposed to happen. So the second advent, I want and it's easy to notice we get caught we get caught up in the vision just reading this. So we can kind of excuse John for falling at the feet of an angel. And when we start reading this, we get wow. I mean, you sit and read 11 through 16 and just read it several times and you get this real amazing picture of what the Lord is, is going to do. But what's easy to miss is the second advent is a clear manifestation of the essence of God. Look at what this thing is saying. Because we know that there are ten major characteristics of who God is. He's sovereign, righteous, justice, eternal life, and love. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He never changes, and He absolutely speaks the truth. And what do we just see here? Faithful is unchanging. What have we just seen? Truthful. He's absolute veracity. Righteousness and justice Right there, four elements of his essence, right there in that simple little phrase wrapped up in really one sentence. The Antichrist riding on the white horse is a counterfeit of this event back in chapter 6. It's the wrong timing. Uh, this one, uh, uh, the first C proclaim peace. This one says it's time for war. Ecclesiastes 3 said there's a time for war and there's a time for peace so that one came forth with a great peace movement trying to propose a globalist agenda this one comes forth and says it's time for war the time has come and it's the wrong starting point the first horse of Revelation 6 began on earth the horseman riding out across the earth this one starts in heaven Wrong starting point. The opening of heaven refers to Christ and his armies leaving there, headed to planet earth. And Christ's return is part of the evidence that he faithfully and truthfully keeps his word. You know, how many passages can you think of just off the top of your head? That Jesus said, I'll be back. I can I think of John 14. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again and bring you to myself. How about Acts 1 8? Tell us, is it at this time that you're establishing the kingdom? No, it's not. Your job is starting Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And the angel said, just like you have seen him go, he's going to come back. How many times do you, do you see 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture of the church, the passage there? He's coming back, he's coming back. The whole book of Revelation is really one prophecy. Because it uses a singular and it starts in chapter 1 with the words of the book of this prophecy, not multiples. It's one prophecy with multiple parts. It uses the same singular in chapter 22 when it closes us out. What's the one prophecy? That runs the whole thread. Jesus is coming back. That's the whole prophecy of the book. It's the point of the book. And yet we have some people say. He's not coming back. And they call themselves Christians. Well he's going to come back in the hearts of men. Or he's going to come back when we finally get it all good. And we do our own millennial kingdom. Those are all wrong. He says I'm coming back and it's a mess. Is why I'm coming back. I'm coming back to straighten this thing out. It is a picture of the fact that when he says something, he's going to keep it. Peace will be established, but only after the true holy war. This is a jihad. This is what it is. It is a holy war. He will be doing battle with atheists, polytheists, and the wrongful monotheists. He will be doing battle with everyone that is not one of his followers. He's going to make it, says all his enemies a footstool for his feet. We're going to have to remember Psalm one ten one as we move on through this. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you read on, he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is totally different. And verse 2, or first of all, notice his immutability. That's faithful. His veracity is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Righteousness and justice. Four of his his attributes. And it says, in his eyes are a flame of fire. And we haven't seen this phrase since chapter 1 in verse 14. Eyes are a picture of omniscience. When the Lord is looking over all the earth. This is a picture of his omniscience. He not only knows everything that is going to happen. He knows everything that could happen. He knows all the possibilities. Try to wrap your head around that. We think about cause effect and well if I do this then this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen then this is gonna we call it practice bleeding is what we call it. That's what they called it at Glenhaven. Well if I do this then this is gonna happen and it's gonna produce a bad result and then this is gonna happen and we start trying to think four or five cause effects down the road and our brain goes I don't know where I am now anymore. We can't do that, but think of God and omniscience and you think He sees all the cause effects. He sees all the primary causes. He sees all the secondary causes and the tertiary causes. He knows the different things that goes into your decisions. Now, the key thing about your decisions is they're your decisions. They are influenced by the environment without a doubt. But they are not determined by the environment as evolution would have you think. No, all you need is one person to go against their environment, and you 've just shown that to be false. His eyes are a flame of fire flame of fire indicates judgment, purification, so he knows when he goes out on the all all the earth and his eyes are a flame of fire, he knows who to judge, he knows who to take out, who to leave alone, who to protect. he knows all those that that 's amazing you know we 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 think somehow that, like a tornado in Oklahoma we're familiar with, it's just a force of nature. It's all it is. And so here is the tornado coming, and, and those of us who have been around long enough go, boy, this was pretty selective. How did this person get left sitting on a toilet, and their whole house is gone? Okay? Was that the an accident of nature? I just don't have enough faith to believe that that's a divine hand saying not yet. heard about a lady one time in the outhouse tornado coming through, and it actually picked the tornado picked the outhouse up, threw it across the street, and left her sitting there that was the that was she was the talk of the family for generations to come as to as to what happened but Things of that nature. And there's nothing happens by accident. God knows exactly. And that's what this eyes are flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. Now the diadem is a kingly ornament for the head. So it's basically saying that he is the king of nations. You know this diadem we saw back before... It's counterfeited by Satan. In chapter 12, verse 3 and 13, 1, he counterfeits these things. That's what he does. All he is is a counterfeit. He's a fraud from, from square one. He is a total and complete fraud. Counterfeited by Satan. Who's going to take his seat in the tent? We just saw the millennium in part this morning. Okay, what does the Lord do? He takes his seat in the temple, right? And rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years. So what does the Antichrist do? 2 Thessalonians 2, he takes his seat in the temple. Everything the Lord does. Lord comes back on the white horse. Satan knows that, so what does he do? Go riding out on a white horse. Seal, seal 1 to begin with. He is a counterfeiter and he is a master at it. So one has to be careful. He says, On his head, this is the Lord's head, are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. Now, a name is a reputation. When you utter certain names, it's a reputation that goes along with it. This is a new reputation that's established at the second advent. We don't know what it is. See, actions have to be completed for a true reputation to be established. And so what has he said he's going to do? He's going to come back and get us. What's he going to do? He's going to come back and get us. He's one who keeps us as something besides faithful and true. Okay. He's got this name and he knows what it is. But we don't know what it is. This verse describes Christ's omniscience. And kingship. On his head many diadems. As it relates to the second advent. Plus the fact that he is alive. This is the, this is the Lord who was put to death as I recall. And on the third day rose again. And you know, he didn't just fade off into history to be forgotten as evolution takes its form. No, he is alive forevermore. In fact, didn't he say that in chapter 1? I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. And I have the keys to death. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Did you believe it in chapter 1? Well, he's going to prove it in chapter 19. He says, I'm still here. This new name reflects a new dimension of his reputation concerning the defeat of all of his enemies. And I think it's tied to that. I don't know if this new name is Warrior. I don't know if this new name is Victor. I don't know exactly what the... I don't know what the new name is. But what he, he knows what it is. And you know what? Everybody will know what it is. <laughs> when he comes back, everybody will know. In verse 13, it says, And he is clothed. I love seeing words like this. Another perfect tense. Perfect passive participle, a parabolo. Now, balo means to throw and peri means around. So it basically indicates a robe that has been thrown around. I translate it, having been clothed. I do that consistently with a perfect passive participle. Something in the past, something done by an outside force, preceding the action of the main verb. I know that thrills you to no end, preceding the action of the main verb. But it tells me, having been clothed. He was already clothed before he got on the horse, is all it's simply saying. He, having been clothed with a robe, a robe is a hamatian used eighty or 60 times, a very common garment just like the one he wore on earth called a hamadion and other people wore a hamadion on earth and his was bargained for at the cross he's got a robe dipped in blood now this word dipped I would expect the word baptizo in this it's interesting because baptizo the DZO makes it causative so it means cause to be baptized, so there is a a force behind it there 's a decision behind it there's other factors behind it baptizo this is bapto there 's no d z o on it and I went what Where did that word come from Because the common word is baptizo that 's the word go baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This word's only used four times it 's an interesting word because the the rich man wanted to dip remember the rich man and Lazarus he wanted to dip uh, his, his finger in the water to cool it off. okay so that's it's a word that, that basically means uh, dipped it has the, the concept of um, soaking. The other part of it is John 13:26 and it's used twice there. And it refers to the morsel that Jesus dipped to identify the traitor to John remember that John 13 who is it who is it who is it the one that I dip this morsel in and hand it to and he handed it to Judas okay it indicates to soak something and to, and to dip it. It's not baptizo, or we translate it as baptize. This word is a, is a baptism, which is an identification with an event. And it looks to more being thoroughly soaked in it than just dipped in it. So he says, dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of the God. Now, the name is a perfect tense. Passive indicative. Says it's a completed action with the results that go on forever. It is the word Kaleo, which is called. It's been called with lasting results. Jesus is the Word. That's who He is. That's His name. That's His reputation. Now, Jesus Christ secured His clothing for the second advent at the cross, dipped in blood. Soaked in it, being worthy to administer judgment because he was guilty of no crime and carried out his assignment. Fifth chapter of the book of Revelation talks about it. They were looking for one worthy to open the seals of the book. And you remember John said, We looked in heaven, on earth, under the earth, nobody was found worthy to open the seals of the book. And I, John, began to cry. Now, one was found worthy. Who purchased for himself people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. This garment will again be dipped in blood. Only this time it's not his own. That first time that garment already dipped in blood. That basically is talking about his. And what he did on the cross. And the fact that he fully and completely bore the sins of the whole entire world. Isaiah 63 It's going to be dipped again in blood. The first six verses. Who is this that comes from? Edom. Remember this is the south end of the Dead Sea. Remember the final battle of Armageddon. The 200 million kings of the east have assembled at the south end of the Dead Sea. Isaiah 60 to 63. are millennial passages. Second advent passages. Who is this that comes from? Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anchor, trampled them in my wrath, and their life brought a a sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. This is the Lord in hand to hand combat with the kings of the East. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. Hadn't He reserved that all along, Romans twelve, nineteen? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It didn't he didn't say I might. I said, I will. And my year of redemption has come. And I looked. And there was no one to help. And I was astonished. And there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. My wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger. And made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now who were these people coming after? some people say well that wasn't very fair that was God against the rest of the world well I guess in a way it might not be but it seems like he was so seriously outnumbered that kind of made it fair if you want to look at it from 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 that from that realm but here is the here is the Lord who says I'm going to take care of this and it says he did it alone the armies that come back with him from heaven didn't join him in this battle. It's kind of interesting to watch people throughout the course of history, even the Essenes and in the, in the Qumran community thought they were going to join the Lord in a final battle. They had that concept somewhere that they were going to be, and so they trained and they were available. They, they misunderstood that part of Scripture, but they were ready. They were getting themselves ready to join in this final battle if called upon. But they were they were not called upon. Now who is the Word of the Word of God? He is the one that preexisted all creation. John one one. You know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being. And the Word, who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. Colossians 1, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, of all creation. For by him all things were created. In the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and he holds all things together. So Jesus is not a man... Who came to be viewed as God. Or who evolved into Godhood. Jesus is the one and only God. That manifested himself as man. He is God that became man. He is the visible manifestation. Of the omnipresent God. Who is this Jesus? Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification the sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now here is his entourage in the next verse. And the armies which are in heaven. Armies is Stratuma Used eight times. It's only used in 916 in this book to describe the armies of the kings of the east. That's the only other time it's used here. Those numbering 200 million. So they've got their armies assembled on earth, the earth dwellers. And the Lord's coming back with his armies, which are in heaven, clothed. Here's another perfect passive participle. (laughs) You know, it's so neat because the Lord puts the clothing on us. This clothing is salvation so we're not found naked. What did he do with Adam and Eve? (laughs) It says that he clothed them with animal skins. What happens when we show up? He clothes us. Salvation is of God. It is not of man. Everything in the scripture over and over tells us the same, same thing. Clothed in fine linen, busanos is the word for fine linen, busanos. It's used back in verse eight of this chapter, the bride's clothing. It says, "Fine linen, white and clean." Same words used in verse eight. The uh, and clean catharos, were following him on white horses. And again, some people hope these are Harley's. I don't care. I'll be in resurrection body and can't permanently damage myself anymore. (laughs) That'd be fine. Helen's rooting for real horses, you know, that are there. There, A lot of people love real horses. I think they're just big, dumb animals. But anyway, that's me. And it says, and following him on white horses. Now, this clothing, this is so cool, is permanent and it's unfading. When he clothes us with something, it's not going to wear out. Remember what happened to the Jews when they walked out of Egypt? And the clothing they walked out on was the same clothing they walked into the promised land 40 years later in. And it didn't wear out. You remember that? Didn't wear out. Well, Matthew six nineteen, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's such an important verse. The clothing we get from the heavenly one is permanent. It never fades. Now I don't know if we'll have different sets of clothing or not up there. But we won't need them. We just won't need them. It reflects the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ancient Egypt. This is interesting. Let's track down fine linen. Let's find out the first place it was used. Ancient Egypt was known for its fine linen. In Genesis forty-one, forty-two, Here is Joseph revealing himself. Just before he revealed himself. And guess what he does? He puts... Fine linen on Benjamin, his full brother. The fine linen came from Egypt and spread to other parts of the world. But it was known for its fine linen. Seems like the pillow guy gets his stuff out of Egypt now too or something, doesn't he? It's been known for fine linen for for a long, long time. Jews took fine linen with them from Egypt. Now this this is cool. This is the fine linen history. They used it to make the curtains for the tabernacle and the clothing of the priest. So the spoils they took with them from Egypt of their release from slavery, they used to make the tabernacle and to clothe the priest. In a sense, the linen denotes total deliverance via total military victory and honoring God with the spoils of war. That's somewhat of the picture. Now as armies... Include believers, the churches up there, and angels, and it says, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. I have a whole bunch of pictures of of Bible pictures, artist renditions, and I cannot find one I think is befitting of this passage. And it says that from his mouth comes a sharp Viah. The ramphias is used seven times in the New Testament, six times in the book of Revelation. It's a large sword, six feet long. It's a broad sword. It's a big one. It's not the little machaira. It's only 18 inches long. This is a six-foot sword. And where is it? It's in his mouth. From his mouth comes a a sharp sword. Uh, It's interesting that it's used six times in the book of Revelation. The only use outside of it is Luke 2.35 of the prophecy that Simeon gave about Mary's child. And it says that a broadsword, Mary, will pierce even your own soul. It is saying that she would be hurt so much over the loss of her son. But then it says... And the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The prophecy dealt with what her son would go through. Which is the cross. And it would pierce her to the core. But at the good that comes out of it, many hearts would be revealed. A lot of them would repent. And a lot of them would form the church. He says, so that with it he may smite, smite is a good old English word, patasso is the word meaning to hit with a weapon, the nations. And he will rule, future tense, a poimino. And you see where I translated this, shepherd. Poimino is a word that means to Shepherd. That's what it means. when And it quotes Old Testament and allusions to the Old Testament. The word in the Hebrew is shepherd. It's not the word for rule that is there. He is going to rule, but he's going to rule as a shepherd. And that's a totally different viewpoint. It's not the authoritarianism that the Gentiles are used to. It's the shepherding that God has called for his, his people. He will shepherd the nations. Shepherd them, which is the nations. With a rod of iron, Rabdas is a scepter. It's a scepter, it's the ruler scepter. It's the one that's in charge. And he treads it's a futuristic present. It's the word pateo to foot it around. And he is going to tread the wine press of the fierce wrath of the God the Almighty. The fierce wrath they, they kind of played with it. It says literally Thumos. That's the word for explosive anger plus orge, the slow burning anger. So it's translated, tread the wine press of the anger. It explodes at the second advent. Of the wrath, it's been building up for a long time. Of the God, Pantocrator, Almighty, all powerful. He is armed for conflict with his word. His word says it's got to happen. His word says he's going to be the victor. He has been faithful to his word. He has spoken truth with his word. He is armed for conflict Conflict with his word. The word of God is by far the most devastating weapon known to man. It is. When he says, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. Look what's happened throughout the course of history. He made that promise to Abraham. It's never been rescinded. You know, bless Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. Speak good of them. Speak good to them. It doesn't mean that you agree with all their sins and all the bad stuff that they have done, but you speak the truth. How are Christians supposed to do it? Speak the truth in love. That's what you do. So here is it's the most devastating weapon known to man. Those that go against that have borne the wrath of God. What is everybody coming to that part of the world for the second advent? To kill the Jews. Do you think he's not going to show up? <laughs> I mean, it's just like what is he he's made all of his put all of his promises right there in that one basket. I'm going to give you from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. I'm going to do all, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to do all these things. You want to take out the remaining remnant of Jews who are believers on the planet it's not going to happen. He comes there to keep his word to Abraham among other things. He'll first conquer the opposition and he'll shepherd the remnant. That's what he's going to do. The scepter will be returned to Judah. Genesis 49:10, one of the two prophecies that deal with the timing of the first advent. And it says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That's the English. Shiloh is a transliteration of the Hebrew and it means the one to whom it belongs. When did it depart from Judah? The Jews knew it in 28 AD. They knew that prophecy had been fulfilled. Well, guess who the scepter belongs to? His enemies are going to be crushed like grapes says in verse 16 And on his robe And on his thigh He has a name written King of kings And Lord of lords You notice the big letters I hope they put in your, in your translation These are all capitals in the Greek And it's the same size As they found in 17.5 Whenever things were written In extra large letters They were put in the manuscript that way Who is he? king of kings, lord of lords. His robe and thigh both contain his title. His robe has been dipped in blood denoting his qualifications to execute judgment based on the cross. It's already dipped in blood, his. And now it's going to be dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. The name on his thigh asserts that he'll use all of his strength if necessary to win the war, the thigh is the symbol of power. And the large letters are another way of saying he's the greatest of all time. They basically have poked, poked the bear. The enemies of the Lord, they keep poking and poking and poking and poking. They poked him at the cross, but it's part of the plan. So what did he do? He came back. He went to heaven to be with his father at his right hand until the right time. And then dad said, it's time to go get him. So he did. He went to get his bride. He went to bring her home. And he said, he brought her home. She made herself ready. It was time to inherit the kingdom. And so then he comes back. And makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Hadn't happened yet. It looks like it's not far away. It's at least seven years as we know it. But it looks like the timing of this whole scenario is not far away. What do we need to do? Give the gospel to as many people as we can. So the bride of Christ is filled up, the body of Christ is filled up. David has actually been working with someone over the past few weeks. And he accepted Christ last night. Amen. Amen. What is it? Another soul got on the boat. Added to the number, one step closer. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Once again. For your amazing plan, for your amazing grace, for all your blessings that you poured out upon us. Father, thank you for being a heavenly father. and lets us see how we're supposed to be as earthly fathers. Father, I, I do pray that we would learn from that. That we would have the, the strength, the stamina, and the grace, all that goes with it. To see how we should lead the family that you've entrusted to us. Father, may we have learned from this passage, and may we indeed from it grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.